Hi, I'm Victor Milligan, your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And here with me today in London is Martha Bennett to talk about how companies are going to try to get a grip on all the extraordinary technologies that are currently in place and the technologies just around the corner. Welcome, Martha. Thank you very much, Victor, and thanks for having me um, on this podcast. We're going to have a great time here. Yeah, we are. So there is a just a significant amount of technologies that can have a very transformative effect about what a company does, who a company is, and how they work. How does how does a person start to get a hold of that dynamic in their head? With difficulty, you know, you could say when you just look at all the plethora of things that are out there, it's almost like, do I need to lie down with a wet towel on my head? That clearly doesn't get you very far. And I'm happy to say that I think I have a few hints and tips to share in this because, and clearly there is a ton of Forrester research that can help um, um, our clients, but also at the risk of giving my age away, I've been in and around emerging technologies for over 30 years now. She started when she was five. Uh, Yes, wunderkind, (laughs) if only. Um, And I'll just start with a little anecdote as well, because sometimes I know I can come across as a little downbeat when I say this isn't actually working yet or something, but I don't actually mean it in that way. I'm just trying to be realistic about things. And just by the by, um, it was way back, I can't even remember whether it was 92 or 93, when I went into the executive team of a large global insurer where I was leading the advanced technology group, excuse me, at the time, and convinced them that we should take out internet domain names in every country where we had operations. Mm. And needless to say, they looked at me like I'd just descended from another planet. And we didn't know at that time where this internet thing was going to go, but we knew it was important and that we needed to lay some foundations. Yeah. But I think there's a dynamic inside what you said, which is if I just take the two letters that mean everything to everybody today, which is the letter A and the letter I, that's pervading almost every technology pitch going out there, whether AI is there or not. And so you have this hype going on, this this frothy thing. And it's not dishonesty because that's bad, but what it is, is it's the zeitgeist of the day you dive into it, but it leaves the buyer the economic buyer, the actual buyer, and the business person is vulnerable to not really recognizing or not understanding where is it really and what should I really do and when should I do it which can have a negative backlash. And it's actually, I'll pick, I'll pick up on the, on the word backlash you just used, Victor, because that is indeed one of the greatest dangers when companies don't do the due diligence on an emerging tech and essentially buy on the hype and then it all goes wrong, and then the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. <laughs> when, in fact, typically when an emerging technology comes along, it has merit. And clearly, of course, when marketing messages are out there, you only ever market the success stories quite clearly. You wouldn't do anything else. But I sometimes feel that when a technology is new and clearly not everybody understands it and can understand it, that's when it happens that companies too readily believe that what may have worked for somebody else will equally well work for them without actually digging into what made this technology successful 
in that particular circumstance that's being used as the showcase um, in the advertising. Yeah. So I've had the pleasure of being with a set of CEOs over the last month. And two dynamics came out of those discussions. One was there was a hope that they had that, I'll use my words, digital transformation was going to be more of a difference maker and that, that would happen faster and more easily that CX would have a more profound effect on the financials and they would see that by now. But neither were really true. They were somewhat true, but not fully true. And they were on their heels saying, is it that the technology is not really what they say it is? I'm living in the hype world that I should look at how we implement it. I mean, they, they as the most senior people in organizations, were, again, on their heels. But they are key, I think, I think to your point, they have to stay the course because... These, these technologies are coming regardless whether they're coming as a customer expectation or as a competitive threat to them. Oh boy, that's a, there's a multi-layer answer to what you've just said. Um, you're absolutely right in that any new technology to introduce it effectively sooner or later really requires leadership and management buy-in. I have also sadly seen a lot of cases in recent years where management picked up on a buzzword. Usually it's either blockchain or AI or possibly both and actually went to the technology team and said, we must have some of that. Sorry, but that is actually a recipe for the disaster. It's obviously fair to say, what could this technology do for us? Are we looking into it? Those are fair questions. You know, business leaders and technology leaders need to work together. But to come in and mandate that a technology should be used, sorry, that's the wrong way. But to your point around transformation, that is something that, for whatever reason, seems to be a lesson that is very difficult to learn because it's always easier to go and implement some technology. But if you go back a long time when CRM first came along, it became very obvious at that time that the technology itself can support a business process. But if you haven't got the right business process in place, the technology can't make it happen. And so with a lot of the emerging technologies today, in particular those that can have a disruptive influence, I keep using the 80-20 rule. It's about... it's about 80% business, only 20% technology. And leveraging a lot of these new technologies to best effect, aside from the technical challenges that you need to address, you actually have a lot of non-technical issues. And that's the majority of the challenge. The process change, the culture change that they bring with them, that's where companies tend to stumble in that they actually expect too much from the technology per se, because it is actually still very hard work to leverage these. Yeah, it's, we, we had a discussion with sort of folks about the, the role of AI in customer experience. And as you sort of progress AI and machine learning and all the experiences that would come from that, going from facial recognition, responding to those things, some things that have been very public in the newspapers that didn't go well, and it struck me that there is this true concept of risk and reward. There is a significant possible reward for the use of AI in, let's say, CX. But there's also a way to think of managing risk. And it's, you're not sure what risk you're managing yet. And I think there needs to be a business judgment about risk and reward that's on a constant basis because that equation will shift over time. Couldn't agree more. And 
that two things I would say to that, one which is in direct response to your question, one which leads in a slightly different direction, and, and that is companies really sit, need to think more about the what-ifs. Um, yep. What I tend to find when companies, in, you know, let's just say the introduction of chatbots, companies tend to think in terms of what the thing should do, and they test it that way, and if it performs well enough, they let it loose. What they should also be doing is adopt the mindset of somebody who is mischievous and tries to trip the thing up. Like a parent with a child. Uh, yes, exactly. Or what would a criminal do? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. My advice in, is always is if you don't think more like criminals, you're going to get into trouble. <laughs> Because criminals have a, they're pretty good at actually being ahead in using technologies in a way in which they weren't intended and finding loopholes. Yep. Which brings me to that to my second point around the technology. This is where we do need to be careful with overinflated expectations, which is why, and I know this may sound a little controversial and simplistic. Whenever I have a discussion with a client or run a workshop on AI, I always say. You need to start with the premise that what we're really talking about is natural stupidity. And the reason I flip it round in this way is that we need to remember that, number one, whatever AI technique you use, because as you know, AI isn't one thing, it's many different ones. You mentioned face recognition, where you mentioned machine learning, there are many different technologies of different maturity grades. Anyway, it is still people who select the technology, people who select how the technology is to be used, and most importantly, people who select the data that goes into these systems. And that's where I'll make a final point and then I'll hand it back over to you. What I continue to see it when things go wrong and you talk about those disappointments is when companies don't necessarily understand that their data might not actually be good enough or not good enough yet to really make one of those systems shine. So the technology may actually be working, but it's a company's data that isn't fit for purpose. And I think there's two parts. One is the idea of does a tech work versus does it work operationally like we wanted to to drive the gains we want? That's like one question. And the second question is, this sort of paradox of all of this revolutionary technology while companies are facing the reality of technical debt and data debt, which, you know, sort of go in two different directions. So I'm going to start with the second one first, which is, you know, we did a podcast with Liz Herbert and in it, you can see companies coming to terms with the idea that they haven't really come out of technical debt. They haven't really, they don't have a, a mature data governance environment that allows them to understand how good is my data? Do I even understand my data? Am I leveraging it right? Do I understand the processes of test data? All those different things. Meanwhile, to your point, the expectation is it's it's instant fuel. So those investments go two ways. One is I'm investing almost to the past to pick to bring my my organization forward to where it should be while I'm investing in the future. How have you seen leaders handle that paradox? Um one one of the neatest tricks that I've seen actually is when you, and I'll just call it loosely, do, uh, embark on an emerging technology project, do, do some innovation. The best way uh, to 
come to grips with a technology is by using it, by running a project, not necessarily even with the intent of rolling it out. We're still at an earlier stage, but doing something for real, because that then shows the art of the possible. But what it also does, it shows up deficiencies in existing systems. And when you go back to that investment that is absolutely necessary around data governance, around shoring up um, the legacy, or call it heritage, you know, that there is still a lot of value in those systems. Let's say you, you do an AI project, and it turns out that the reason you can't get the results you want is that your data isn't good enough. Well, that is a good catalyst to get investment in whether it's data governance or changing the, how you capture data, how you clean data, wherever the weak point is, going in and saying we need to do a data governance project tends to be a lot more difficult to justify. Yeah, yeah. sounds a little bit like hygiene at that point in time. So I'm going to go to the, the other question, which was, and this came up in podcasts I've had with you in the past, which is many of the proof of concepts were proving the, the, the viability of the technology, but they weren't testing the readiness of the operation to exploit that same technology. And so how, how are you working with clients to either enrich the proof of concept with an operational mindset or to your point, put the car on the road and start driving and understand how will the organization really work with this thing? Because there'll be a lot of learnings once you see the car go down the road. Again, I'll put two aspects to it because clearly you don't want to hold up um, in particular an earlier stage R&D project, you don't want to hold that up by saying, well, we must think about all these other things. So it is it is perfectly okay to say we're going to get our hands dirty by trying this technology. That said, it should never be in complete isolation, even when you're just saying, well, could we do this using, well, let's say blockchain. You should always have in mind, okay, in the back of my mind, how would I integrate this with the system that actually where the data originates? Um, what would I need to do to integrate this with our single sign-on system? As well as always bearing in mind, can this actually scale? Because obviously you know what the requirements of your operation are, because you R&D teams are wasting the company's money if they spend too much time on getting things to work where they actually have discovered on day three that this particular chosen technology either will never scale or is too far away from scaling to be of use. So there need to be those cutoff points as well. If you're embarking on a project because you actually hope that you're going to be able to operationalize, that's where I always say start on the whiteboard. Map out the entire process from end to end, all the systems that are involved, all the people that are involved. It sounds cumbersome, but that will save you from falling at the later hurdle when you have that, oh, no moment. <laughs> When almost, you find that it just won't integrate. Yeah, almost to almost integrate Lean Six Sigma principles into the technology planning. Where you look at the whole process, yeah. how does it really work and where where are natural deficiencies, natural issues take place. And and something else I'd say simply because I've observed it over not just in the past few years, but over the decades, many organizations don't know when to stop doing a POC. You have to have cutoff points. 
And if after three, let alone six months, you still have nothing in sight with whether this will ever work or address your use case, then you probably shouldn't persevere. In the discussions that we have on technology, we are pointing at 2020, 2021, and maybe even beyond to look at how companies, leaders and teams will exploit technologies for the good. But there's at least two examples today that also need to get wrestled to the ground, which is if you look at marketing automation platforms and CRM systems, the the underlying assumption or or theory of the case was that was going to automate pieces of the business. If you look at most organizations, you have people that that do manual work around those systems just to make those systems work, and it's non-trivial manual work. In other words, the promise that was expected is not really the promise delivered, even on the existing technologies in place. What's learnable about that? Oh boy, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, I'll actually throw in one thought because I think that is one of the underlying issues with any kind of automation, because I'm actually seeing that around um, AI and blockchain as well, that typically what companies are trying to do is automate a process as is. And that tends to be a mixture of highly structured, repetitive, everything the same every time, and whatever the percent, it may, in some organizations that may be 70%, sometimes 80 sometimes it may be as low as 40 And then you've got the other aspect of a process, and that is the complex pieces. And you cannot automate complexity. The moment that you have a lot of human dynamics, a lot of human judgment, a lot of exceptions involved, you just can't automate. And so, and I, we have actually turning it round. We have seen companies, and I know it, it, on one occasion it was actually around a chatbot project, where the company stopped the chatbot project and redesigned its processes before they went back to the technology. Or if they didn't, you get to the issue, you, you codify the process you don't want, but more to the point, you harden the habits that surround that process. You do that, but also you continue to require a lot of manual work for all the stuff which can't be automated in the first place, but you're, you're doing it in a more complicated way than necessary because you're not separating things out at an, at an appropriately early point. Right. How do I think of sourcing these technologies? How do I think of engaging a set of emerging companies that are coming up, they're not scaled themselves, they offer significant promise. Do I invest in them? Do I buy them? Do I part? You know, how, how do I think of just that dynamic? But firstly, and, and let's be honest about it as well, to do it really well, you need to have a certain degree of expertise in-house that really allows you to assess those little guys. Almost like a venture capitalist expertise, yeah. yeah. And if you don't, then maybe look for a technology partner who has that expertise, but who can't offer what the little guys offer. The other point to make is that you you probably need to throw out a lot of your existing approach to working with partners because what we're seeing a lot of the time when a company engages with a startup, they're pulling out the same procurement process um, that they have for doing a big deal. So they want several years worth of audited accounts and they want um, all uh, 100 pages worth of, let's just call it stuff, which A, the startup doesn't know what to do with, may not have the resources to do, and also 
isn't actually fit for the purpose, which is around innovation, early investigation. I've even seen it in projects where some large companies collaborate. And then instead of just getting the collaboration going with a minimal legal framework, they're almost, they're putting the lawyers on as if they were discussing a merger. <laughs> and that is, that requires a rethink as it, you need to do due diligence, clearly. You need to ensure legal compliance. You need to make sure that, you know, you don't get any exposures from that perspective, but you do need to have some kind of light, L-I-T-E engagement process as well. Yep. And so one of the recommendations I'm hearing from you is that larger traditional companies that want to exploit that dynamic have to think of themselves both as an operating entity and and almost as a venture capitalist, which is I'll seed the money with, I'll, I'm sorry, I'll seed the market with money. I'll invest in certain ones. I, I, some will fail, some will succeed, but on a portfolio basis, I'll, I'll get the value out of it. And, and that's indeed a term that among my colleagues in the CIO team, we're increasingly using with CIOs to take that portfolio management approach. Before we taped this, we had the word innovation chain. And it's, so I'm going to ask this the straightforward, simple question. What is an innovation chain and why do we care? I'll use an example because that probably brings it to life and rather than leaving a theoretical construct hanging in midair here. And that is that sometimes we see breakthroughs in a, in a technology that are only possible because of developments elsewhere. So let me give you the example. Way back in, again, the early 90s, we conducted a data mining pilot. The data volumes were tiny, the machines took up the size of a room, and the end result was that we had a result, but we couldn't cost justify the deployment. Fast forward to the time when big data became a thing, the techniques for analyzing the data were not actually new, but what really enabled the breakthrough was developments in storage and processing power, you know, the, that you could get um, powerful CPUs at very low cost, that you can store as much as you want to almost without needing to think about cost. This is not meant to be an encouragement to store garbage, but you see what I mean. And it's it's those developments on the hardware side that enabled that breakthrough. And that's what we call an innovation chain. And people who understand that they need to look elsewhere, they are the ones that will be ready when those the different elements of such a chain come together. So, so I'm going to repeat back to what I think you just said to me. So one of the skills in the market is to time technology. When do I buy into it? Because I'm not buying into early. That's your point. I'm not buying into the hype mode. I'm not buying too late or I'm coming late to market, but I have a sense of when the technology matters from a test and deployment standpoint. Your argument is not don't look at the individual technologies, but look at these combinations that form 
that tell us that there's going to be a breakthrough coming. We think of that as a, that that's the innovation chain. Exactly. And what I'd also say, picking up on an earlier point that you made, again, you need to take a risk management approach and you need to understand the maturity of your organization because not everybody has the resources to take long-term bets because some of the technologies that we're looking at where we are making bets, you you can't always say with certainty when exactly something will happen and some things may not happen. So it's how many bets are you prepared to take and are you prepared to lead? Because let me throw in something else here, open source. So much innovation is happening in the open source environment and some there are actually a lot of enterprises who now actively contribute to open source code and driving the innovation themselves. That clearly isn't for everybody. So there used to be this this debate about whether I buy in before standard forms. And so there I, I buy into a proprietary technology that won't be supported. So the APIs, integration, all that stuff gets really hard. But I don't know if that concept even applies going forward because these technologies are going too fast to have an underlying standard underpin them. Does that play out here at all? To have a standard clearly requires a lot of collaboration. And we have also got examples of very successful standards formation. But what we're also seeing more and more and more is that standards develop in a de facto way. That's hard because, you know, you spend a lot of time in blockchain or distributed ledger technology. And those standards, those agreements are necessary because you're not buying a technology. You're a set of ecosystem partners that you do and don't know are buying into something. So there has to be something common among them. How do I know that there's enough there, whether it's ad hoc or formalized, that I can that I can go? Well, th- this is one of the, the techno- technology set you've just mentioned, whether you call it blockchain or distributed ledger, is one of those that are probably in the most nascent stages still. But what I'm, because there's what so much innovation going on and also real deployments, what people actually are looking at is taking things that have already seen adoption and then forming groups that are aimed at actually agreeing on, okay, let's let's coalesce around this one. And the other important point also is, and you mentioned APIs earlier, there is a lot more flexibility that we now have where we don't all have to converge on the same thing as long as we have, have ways of having things talk to each other. Yep. So I'm in the market. I'm trying to advance my firm. I'm trying to stay at pace, get ahead where I can, think of my core different core competency and differentiate accordingly. And all I see around me are new nouns, a, a fleet of acronyms that mean the same thing, mean different things. Some are real, some are not real. What is what is the steps I take just to get flat with that? Just to say, here's where the world is right now. Here's where I am. And this is a rational 9, 12, 18 month plan of attack to take on these different pieces so that I'm staying a pace with where I should be. 
dare I say, the f unless you've already done it, the first step is to be absolutely clear about what you're actually trying to do. <laughs> I know this sounds simplistic, but I still see that a lot of the time, that the cart is being put before the horse. What do I do with these technologies? Clearly, you need to understand what the potential of technologies is, but you the starting point always has to be, what am I trying to do? What, what are the goals of my company? And then work backwards from that. And this is also where business and technology leaders really need to work together and you know, literally look at, you know, what does this actually mean? Let's shake off the pixie dust and look at this, look at the technologies for what they are. Which of these can help us advance our goals? And, you know, some of those goals actually may be around we want to disrupt the market, or if your main goal is actually we need just to make sure that we can stay competitive while we repair those outdated systems that we have run, running in the background. So you have to start from those premises and your current state. And if you don't have the expertise in-house, then find yourself a trusted partner. And clearly you you may want to talk to more than one and because in particular when it's in somebody's commercial interest to sell you a large project, a technology will suddenly have a lot more utility than say when Martha Bennett from Forrester says something because while clearly we don't want to lose any clients, it's not in my commercial interest to make you use a particular technology or not. So there was an adage of it's business first and technology gets woven into the business strategy and the bad thing to do is technology for technology's sake. We have an explosion of technologies that follow the same roles, but in the same breath, technology is opening up the art of the possible. That's a very different aperture. Is this a technology first, business first? Is it neither? How should I think of it as an executive? Um Certainly think about them absolutely hand in glove. That's why we talk about tech-driven innovation. But what we're not trying to say by that, you should put technology first. Clearly, the business has to come first, but they everything has to be much more simultaneous than it has been before. Anything kind of sequential, I work out my strategy, then I select the technology. That's out the window. <laughs> Yeah, because technology does open up the aperture for what's yeah. possible, and it and it will change the business mindset about w how the market will go and, and how to anticipate competitive actions and that type. And that's why I'm saying technology has to be at the table right from the word go. Yeah, going back to the premise of this podcast, we are in a time and place where there's an explosions of technologies, and if I'm a leader, I can feel both amped up by the opportunity and yet vulnerable because I'm making decisions that are quite consequential with very little precedent. I mean, I don't know these technologies. I'm just learning the acronyms and they can affect my operations and people deeply. So I'm going to ask you to, to call up a conversation you've had with an executive that sort of animates that, that tension. Okay, let me pick up on a recent conversation I had with a, quite a senior person who basically said, you know, can we just stop all this blockchain hype? When will we admit that this isn't good for anything? I haven't seen any positive returns and, you know, can we, can we just stop it? And I said, well, firstly, you're probably expecting too much. Secondly, a lot of the projects that are going on today are more around 
taking processes we've already got and making them better. And that doesn't give you the kind of transformational result that you're alluding to. You're absolutely right in that. However, there is a lot of future potential that really revolves around doing things differently. Transformation, disruption. And we don't have the time here to go into the finer detail, but I took him through some of the scenarios that involve multiple companies around a process where you can do things with distributed ledger technology that you simply couldn't do with what we've got today. And I also said, this may not be for you. You may not want to be that trailblazer. That is fine, but that doesn't mean that you should just dismiss the technology. And he actually went away and said, I'm going to think about that. Martha, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Want to hear more from Martha? Join her and other Forrester analysts and business technology leaders at next week's Digital Transformation and Innovation Forum in London. For more information and to reserve your seat, visit for.com slash dtlondon. That's forr.com slash dtlondon. Thanks for listening.